0: Well, hello, John. We are back with two
1: texts. Here we go. Uh, I've enjoyed my break, but I'm ready and raring to go, David. I'm ready and raring to go. Let's do it.
0: And so here we are at the beginning of uh, Lent, this 40-day uh, sort of journey that the church has observed for many, many years that leads us up to Easter. And and you and I thought that we would keep it a slightly out of sync with what's going on, but good places to reflect during this period. We would think about the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So Lent leads us up to Easter, which is a sort of culmination of what Jesus' earthly ministry was. But we we were thinking, following on from what we talked about at Christmas, let's think about where Jesus begins his ministry. And we're going to do that in Luke's gospel, aren't we?
1: yeah absolutely. I think Luke gives us beautiful links, as it were, not only sort of from the sense of the beginning, but I think also uh beautiful threads that run through Luke, which I think foil nicely off the other gospels and Luke gives us lots of deep about that relationship that Jesus has with John, being filled with the spirit, being led into the wilderness, and then launching his ministry. Um, in the power of the spirit. So really beautiful framework, I think, to work off, which really helps us when we're thinking about this uh, beginning period. Yeah.
0: And, and that will kind of link back into some of the things we talked about during our Christmas series, where we mm. talked about how the stories of, of Mary and Zechariah, they load things into the, the the gospel at the very start that become... Really clear as Luke progresses through his work. Well, the same, I think, is true of, of the sort of beginning part of Jesus's ministry, his encounter with John the Baptist, his own baptism, his temptation, his appearance in the synagogue in Luke chapter four. Yeah. These are all programmatic is the word that we've used before, isn't it? They, they they're, they've yeah. got details to them that you're going to want to be aware of as you're unpacking this, this beautiful gospel. And, and I think right the way into Acts as well.
1: Absolutely absolutely and and as we as we're going to reflect together today a little bit on John obviously we're we're, we're leaning into the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, but you can't do that without reflecting on john 's role. who was John? Where did he come from what's he about? Some of the things he said do they do they prepare the way for Jesus? Do they line up with Jesus? Do they conflict with Jesus? There's some really interesting stuff going on there mm. are very complex. Uh, situation. But of course, having, having done sort of Zechariah's, uh, that leans beautifully, uh, into this moment in, in Luke 3. And there is a beautiful connector between the, the prophecy of Zechariah and the work of his son, John. And of course, Connecting beautifully into the ministry of Jesus, so it's a it's a good it's a good if people have been following the Christmas story, I think it's a nice little lead into the next part.
0: Also, John, our listeners know that you are our resident Luke's Gospel expert, and <laughs> and for th- say- for th- for those
1: of them, <laughs> you keep saying that David, you keep saying,
0: <laughs> but 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 for those of for those of our listeners who are keeping count, this is this is another dive into Luke's Gospel. So just please know that I'm working on an epic <laughs> Galatians series. That John owes me Come
1: on yes once once we get past once we get past jesus and luke then it's then you you can rock the world with paul and and go with that absolutely yeah. you you have earned the right to rock to <laughs> the next three years of podcasts on paul because of because of what you've <laughs> to be fair though to so be
0: yeah. fair luke does write more of the new testament than any other author he so he deserves he, he deserves some attention and i am absolutely okay with that because he is of course a friend of paul's so this is all
1: good <laughs> absolutely absolutely you, you can i think i think you can see paul's influence in his writing and uh, clearly a bit of coaching and influence in terms mm. of as a gentile writer mm. his grasp on the jewishness of jesus and some of the gorgeous connectors and and of course some of unique stories that are profoundly and powerfully old testament based and jewishly orientated i think luke is brilliant at that and there's no doubt that paul had a nudge or two mm. in that direction. There's no doubt about that when you think of the scholarship of Paul.
0: Definitely. Definitely. So um, I hope you've got a coffee, and whether you're in your car listening to us or sat comfortably at home with your Bible listening to us, I hope you've got a nice warm drink. And we are going to jump in, and we're going to start in Luke chapter 3 today, John, aren't we? And mm. and the story yeah, of John are. the Baptist. And do you want to read uh, the first part for us, John? And we we'll, so we'll do we'll we'll begin with Luke chapter 3 uh, and read 1 through 6 I, I i i realize that that's really mean what i've done you because verse 1 is one of those verses of the bible that you hope the pastor never asks you to read in public because there's a good chance that at least one of these names you'll say the way that nobody else says it or something like that and, and, in, in, yes, absolutely. <laughs> and goodness I've asked you to do and, it that's and, and unfair I,
1: yes well I, I, clearly clearly that was that was set up there and also saying these words with an Irish accent Um, even if you're pronouncing them right <laughs> will probably sound wrong anyway so there we are so here we are so let's jump in verse 1 chapter 3 in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Ituria and Tracontus, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Have I done okay so far, David? Sounding good, man. The word of the Lord. (laughs) The word of the Lord came to John. Oh, I've got that one. I know that one. John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance. For the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight. The rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. Magnificent, beautiful words.
0: Beautiful, John. I just always find myself thinking something at Luke chapter 3 and and Luke's done this before in his gospel as well this very detailed assessment of who was where and doing what when mm-hmm. when this story begins and it feels it feels very detailed so Tiberius Caesar was here Pontius Pilate was there Herod was over here his brother was doing this over mm-hmm. there and I always I always really love that. And, and why part of the reason why I always want to keep those readings, even when we read these in church, is it's not just throwaway detail. It's It's reminding us that this story that we're entering into isn't abstract. This is a story that happens in history. This is a story that happened mm. at a particular time around a particular group of people. And I think that's a really important piece to state about where we're going, isn't it?
1: Oh, completely, completely, and and I would encourage our our listeners to we've we've spent a long time leaning into the gospels uh, in various series that we've done, an understanding of the world of the gospels politically, an understanding of that world culturally, an understanding of that world, even I would say religiously. Uh, ethnically and economically, will really inform your reading of the scriptures. And I think when Luke drops this stuff out, we're able to contextualise the story of Jesus immediately into a a political, economic, religious, global, ethnic context. The Roman Empire is is reaching a point of zenith here. This will become, this will be an empire that will, will, rule the world for the next 400 years um, before it crumbles from within and without so it is a staggering context and of course it's remembering that Israel which is the the center of this story and the Messiah who is the center of that story within Israel is right on the fringe of that Empire the eastern fringe of that Empire so it's a sort of although it's a troublesome place to the Romans. And uh, Pilate would have been put there not as an opportunity <laughs> to advance his career, but probably <laughs> as a little bit of a a little bit of a, a nudge that he wasn't liked so much maybe by certain people in power. So this was a difficult and troublesome place, mm. even though it was relatively small, but it set on the fringe of of the greatest empire the world had seen at that point. And yet this story will move from the fringe to the center of that empire within 35, 40 years. So it's really important that we understand that as a as a contextual moment and it really does help us. I I've,
0: I've heard it said in a few contexts that the the although it was on the fringe of the empire, the Jewish people's resistance to Roman occupation was such that the, the, the Romans had more soldiers per capita dealing with Israel than they did in any other part of the empire. And and you can read that in various mm. texts about how yeah, but Josephus talks a lot about this. So Josephus is a writer writing about the same time as the, as the new Testament is being put together. And, and he talks a lot about just how many troubles that the, the Romans had with this little this little fringe corner of the empire that just refused to go quietly <laughs> along with the Roman ideals.
1: No, it's, it's absolutely true. I mean, there was a massive Roman presence just over the border up north based in Damascus, the sort of Syrian oh. legion in that sense, which was a, a huge force that could be mobilized. Very, very quickly. There's a little hintedness in the Gospels when, when Jesus is tried by Pilate, the, the gathered crowd that have been rounded up by the religious community to sort of make life difficult for Pilate are clearly squeezing him. Mm-hmm. Because Pilate has already been in trouble with the local population on at least two occasions. Yes. And it's a sort of the third strike in your out feel about that trial. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a subtext to the trial of Jesus with Pilate where Pilate really has been cornered politically. Mm-hmm. We have no king but Caesar. And that's a threat. That wasn't just hypocrisy from the crowd. Mm-hmm. That was a threat. If you don't do as we want, we will mm-hmm. we will make life very, very difficult for you. And Pilate was under yes. massive pressure. And of course, this little introduction shows us the sort of paradoxical power situation of the first century world. Israel is under the control of Rome, but there are these sort of Tetrarchs, these mm-hmm. regional rulers, Herod, Philip, his brother Archelius before Pilate. When when the Romans remove you because you're so nasty <laughs> and put somebody else in, in your place, you're, so bad. you're pretty bad. <laughs> absolutely so he, he, Ar- archelius was a cut off the old block from his from Herod the great he mm-hmm. was a pretty nasty man and uh, and of course our viewers may remember that it's the reign of archelius that joseph and mary and jesus avoid when they return from egypt and hide in nazareth essentially so you've got these sort of regional power centers and and that's why you'll keep you, you'll keep popping up Uh, Herod the Tetrarch, he's the guy that keeps popping up in our story Mm. because he's sort of looking after the Galilee region. And of course, we find John clashing with him Mm. in this chapter too uh, devastating in effect, ultimately.
0: And uh, listeners might remember back to when we talked about just the end of our parable series. We talked about the parable of the talents, or, or in Luke's gospel, the parable of mm. the minas in Luke chapter nineteen. And Luke even makes an allusion within that parable to this sort of situation that's going on. If you, if you remember, there's this the whole setup of the story as a man of noble birth is going. To be appointed king in a distant country, and the people don't want him to be king. And that really is, I think, a little political comment to the temperature around Jesus at the time of Israel. And as we'll see as you unpack the story of both John the Baptist and Jesus, Herod is deeply fearful, I think, of anybody that appears to have the support of the crowd over and against him. And and yes. that's that's something. And in fact, again, John the Baptist, for that conversation that we're having, is an interesting character historically, because he's one of the few biblical characters in the New Testament who is reported by contemporaries. So again, going back to Josephus, Josephus is aware of this character, John the Baptist, and Josephus's take on John the Baptist is that Herod sees him as a threat, and that Herod is worried about the people's response to John and how that might threaten Roman rule. I think whenever you are a pretty despotic leader, if it looks like the people are going to turn against you, that very very rarely goes well for you, does it?
1: For sure, and I think Herod Herod the Great, the father of the men listed in our mm. in our passage, he was. I mean. One sense of brilliant man engaged in great buildings, great ventures, but he was also, I mean, ruthless, megalomaniac, Mm. quite dangerous at lots of that. When when your insecurity causes you to kill every child under two, (laughs) every male child under two in the Bethlehem region, that shows the levels you're prepared to go. I think it was Caesar who said of Herod, safer to be his pig than to be a son yes which the jewish context of that then then that's a it's a bit of a huge insult there and and it shows how the romans viewed Mm. herod and i think herod's sons inherit that insecurity they they are incredibly vulnerable Mm. the romans ultimately hold all the power but they are uh, letting letting them rule to a degree Regionally, But that depends on keeping the peace, keeping the people in line, keeping the taxes flowing, making sure everything keeps working. Mm. And anybody or anything that's going to disrupt that is a threat. And sometimes as Christians, we, we see the threat of John just as sort of spiritual. But of course, Herod would have read that threat initially as political. Yes. And, and would have seen John's insult to him as a political in front, affront, which is probably why he moved quickly mm. against John, because he didn't want any political movement gathering momentum around this religious fanatic. Yes.
0: Of course, when you're in a context like first century Israel, the lines between religious and political are, are immensely blurry. Uh, because the, the, there's prophecy and hope and expectation that are all connected to land and borders and and country aren't they
1: and and when you when you view that sponginess mm. the the crossing of the lines around that and you understand that you realize how remarkable Jesus was mm. Jesus doesn't really make any openly direct negative political statements about rome i mean the closest we get to a direct statement on rome is give to caesar what is caesar's Mm -hmm. give to god what is god's and that has a context to it he he's scathing of herod he calls herod a fox Mm -hmm. that's as strong as he gets he seems to avoid the sort of political confrontation that will make him a political enemy. And yet, even though Jesus is not directly political, his message is profoundly, profoundly mm. political in the sense that if you really understand the kingdom of God properly, it's going to affect how you view the government. It's going mm. to affect how you view your world. It's going to affect how you view everything. And Jesus is, I think, by stealth, by by under the radar mm. almost, he's challenging the Roman world without... Without raising an army to do so mm-hmm. he's uh, he's challenging them with the idea of the kingdom of God and I think that's really and of course he's having to resist then a Jewish worldview of the kingdom of God, mm-hmm. which is very physical mm-hmm. even military military in its outlook mm-hmm. and Jesus is having to contend with that idea. Mm-hmm. Push back on that so that he doesn't end up getting railroaded into being a king, mm-hmm. the sort of king that he doesn't want to be. So when you understand the tensions of the world that Jesus is in mm-hmm. and the different groups he is managing, what he achieves at a public level is absolutely sensational. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing, amazing um way that he leads in that context and the pressure he must have been under constantly negotiating all these sides would, would just would have been horrendous. Yeah, he,
0: he does seem to be navigating a line which is about a millimeter thick. I mean, Absolutely. and because our, our listeners will, will know by the time you get to Acts, you look at the beginning of Acts, the disciples put mm. questions to Jesus about like, so when are you going to actually do all this stuff you've been talking about, Jesus? And they clearly mean that in terms of, like, what are you going to do politically? What are you going to do in terms of these yeah. oppressors? We'll probably talk about it during our discussion about John the Baptist. But even John the Baptist, who proclaims mm-hmm. great things about Jesus, starts to get a little a little blurry as to when Jesus is going to do the things that he imagines. Um Indeed. Indeed. So, so there's one level of story uh, that's going on here. Just dropping down into verse two, John. I wonder if there's a second level of story that we just want to speak about very quickly. Which is, the word of the God of God came to John, son of Zechariah, and then you just get these three little words, (laughs) which I can't help but think Luke has loaded up for us in his telling of the story. The word of God came to John and in the greek it's in the deserted place or in the wilderness or in the desert i mean i i think i know you well enough to know what your thought process does when you see those three greek words in the desert but i'm just curious like where do what what does that bring out for you
1: well i mean for me it's i think there's a a couple of levels of of nuance that are sort of in there i i think obviously when you think about the journey of God's people originally, mm-hmm. a journey out of slavery mm-hmm. into promise, you have this in the wilderness experience. In fact, in fact, the fourth book of the Torah mm-hmm. is called In the Wilderness, Bar In Hebrew, we, we call it the Book of Numbers, but mm-hmm. in Hebrew, it's Bar And it refers to the wilderness journeys. And the idea that actually they are, the the wilderness is not the destination. The wilderness is the the route Mm -hmm. to promise. It's the route to fulfillment of God's plan. And I, I love this idea that the word of the Lord comes to John in this wilderness. That that there's a sense in which what we're now about to see not only comes to him in the wilderness, but there is this nuance that God is leading people from wilderness mm-hmm. into purpose, into truth. Mm-hmm. And and for me, that's that's a, a beautiful little idea. I, I mean, there's probably there's probably a sense in which John literally lived in the wilderness. Oh, yes. There's a little tradition that, that suggests he was. Possibly a member of the Essene community, and he certainly reflects the sort of theology of the Essenes in terms mm. of judgment and kingdom of God. And there is a tradition that talks about a son of lawlessness leaving the Essene community that was a bit wild. Mm. Well, John sort of fits the description, and so he's coming out of his own wilderness into purpose. Mm-hmm. And of course, he's preparing a way in the wilderness for the people of God to enter purpose through Jesus Christ. So there's a I think are some lovely little trade-offs within that. And and of course, if you think of the Isaiah passage that we then lean into, you've got a an Isaiah reference that is about helping a people that are struggling. With their own lostness and wanderings and exile being brought back into purpose, so there's some there's layers of of yeah. nuance in just that little phrase. I don't think it's simply saying, "Oh, John happened to be in the wilderness, maybe <laughs> with the Essenes when he had the word of the Lord." I think the fact that that phrase is given hints at some bigger narrative context here for us.
0: Yes, and that's exactly what I would agree with as well, John. That 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 when we read scripture, some of the some of the little throwaway phrases are actually big neon lights saying hey this is part of another bigger story and I think that's what Luke's doing I think you see that in acts really clearly as well that oh this story has a political space it's happening in a real time to real people uh, with real situations going on but this story is also a part of the big swathe of the salvation history of God of of his Absolutely. process of rescue and 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 putting things back together. It's interesting I was just I was just reading around John the Baptist as you might expect when we were prepping for for this conversation and and you're you're totally right as well that, that John looks kind of crazy to us right that like like who is this guy right and and yeah and and what is he wearing if you if you kind of look at some of the other texts that we know about john from from other gospels but i think it's important to say that if you were in first century israel john makes sense to you right? So like you mentioned, the Essenes, as you say, there is a lot of discussion out there as, was John one of the Essenes? Was he not? He, We're not going to settle that on our podcast. But, But I would say for our listeners, reading about the Essenes will give you some sort of idea of the type of people that were around that John was very similar to. Mm-hmm. Uh, read about the Essenes and where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered and these, you know, things. And I think, at very least you'll you'll get a sense of what it's like. And and there was other characters out there. There was there's these these characters that appear in Jewish history, like Honey the Circle Drawer, and Hananiah Bendoza. These these characters, and when you le- read about them, Josephus talks about some of these characters. They sound like John the Baptist. These these Indeed. charismatic oracular prophets who are out in the desert. And of course, in the desert's really significant because they're. They're making a statement about where they're not. So again, another thing that we learn from the Essenes is their decision to move out of Jerusalem was to get away from the religious establishment which they believed had become lost and corrupt so the That's physical weird. fact that you have to journey your way out into the desert to hear this person you kind of I would say it's not that when you've got politicians using or rather people that would like to be elected as politicians where do you hear them speak not in the houses of parliament you hear them speaking in street corners and on twitter because they're they're away from the central place because they're sometimes Trying to intentionally object to the central central space, and I think that's the context that we understand this this slightly unusual looking prophet called John. <laughs> For
1: sure, and and John appears. There's an Elijah feel mm, to him. Mm. Elijah just appears. Elijah the Tishbite, and he yeah. just okay. <laughs> we, we, <laughs> yeah, we, we virtually know very little about him other than the sort of his name and, and the, the the tribal context mm. from which he comes. It just just arrives. John's sort of the same. Now, of course, we've been given a little bit of the backstory mm. on John. But then after Zechariah's prophecy, John disappears. Yeah, I just, mean, there's not a reference. He just van. We don't really know what happens in terms of biblical record to Zechariah mm. or Elizabeth. They disappear. Yep. John disappears, and then he reappears. But, of course, he reappears in this non-conformist context. He's wild, wearing camel skin, clothes, <laughs> leather belt, locust hanging out of his mouth, <laughs> honey dripping off his beard. Do you know what's all going on? He's a bit wild. He's a bit maverick. John is fitting into that prophetic tradition, mm-hmm. this sort of Elijah, Elisha, wild untamed uncontrolled no one can rule them no one reigns them no one's paying their bills no one's got them in their pocket these men are are out there and they're almost it seems a bit of a law Mm -hmm. unto themselves and john just absolutely fills that space and and again for our viewers our, our listeners who will know this that the gap between malachi and and the the period of the gospels approximately 400 years pass mm. of prophetic silence there's been there's been stuff rattling around and there's been political and military intrigue in that period but but no real prophetic voice and of course malachi ends with this idea of you know so the the way being prepared, the refiner's fire is coming, and then John pops up, mm. <laughs> um, talking about repentance and fire and winnowing forks and wheat and chaff. I mean, he is just absolutely fulfilling all of that, yeah. all of those classic stereo lawless types, and uh, and John's out there doing that. So it's it the, in the wilderness is a very very powerful little. Hold on, this is more than just where he started his ministry. And I think there's also a contrast being drawn
0: and and i'm I'm channeling a bit of uh, Nt Wright here. I was reading his his uh, sort of big work on Jesus again as we prep for this series and 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 Wright points out that you get to verse three, he went into all the country around the Jordan mm. preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And I think as a mm. as a contemporary reader, particularly one that's grown up in the church. That sounds like a very normal statement, right? A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But what what Tom Wright highlights, which I think is a really interesting point, just to bring in even to support what you were saying just there, particularly as we're talking about John, son of Zechariah. Zechariah is a priest who serves in the temple. Mm -hmm. Tom uh, Wright points out that the forgiveness of the sins is something that the temple system offers to people. So so what don't let's not miss what John is doing here as the the beginnings and the precursor to Jesus's ministry John is coming up and saying you can get forgiveness from sin from somewhere other than the temple I cool. mean that's a huge it. statement in the history of 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 kind of the the biblical story isn't it
1: It's totally radical and and if you grab that idea of course it then Jesus makes sense too. So if I'm if I'm not mistaken, and I I could be wrong, so please forgive me if maybe, maybe one of our listeners picks this up. But but I am fairly certain that virtually, uh, with the exception of the woman caught in the act of adultery in John mm-hmm. eight, and there's a bit of controversy around that story. But with the exception of that story, Jesus pronounces forgiveness of sins outside of the temple almost exclusively. Mm-hmm. So, if you count her in, she is the only example mm-hmm. of a pronouncement of forgiveness of sins. I think, David. Mm-hmm. Now, I I am flying by the seat of my pants but here because I'm fairly certain that is the case. It's a great study. It's a great study
0: for a listener, though, that wants to that wants a little bit of homework. <laughs> is Check is John in. right?
1: <laughs> yeah. Am I right? I'm hoping I'm right, but yeah. But if if I'm not completely, absolutely right, it's. The vast majority of Jesus' pronouncements of forgiveness is outside of them. so 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 Jesus follows exactly the same trajectory as John. So John has whatever whatever John mm. is and John isn't, whatever he becomes or whatever he, he does, John absolutely gets this. He understands that part of his job is to prepare not just mm. the way for the Messiah, but to prepare it in a particular way and one of the ways he's preparing that is this opportunity and possibility of receiving mm-hmm. the the uh forgiveness of sins outside of the temple system mm-hmm. and that is a radical suggestion right at the beginning of the gospel and it's not coming from jesus yes. it is coming from
0: which again speaks to this this objection to the religious systems. And if you're mm. going to object to the very core of the religious system, then there is intrinsically a critique of almost the the entire system going on in that. Everything's up for grabs. If you're going to say that we can do this without the temple, then you're making a big statement. And now mm. I think it's worth saying just to, to fill out our picture – Again, John is not alone in this. So the Essenes, for example, had said, oh, to be done with this Jerusalem system, we're out of here. But also worth noting, the rabbis had done the same thing so so mm-hmm, if you, mm-hmm. the rabbis had decided that the temple system had essentially sold out to Rome, and so what the rabbis were doing was doubling down on the place of scripture as that's what we're yeah. holding on to, and that's what we've yeah. got so you'll see in in the gospels this you you have your Sadducees who are part of the temple system, but you have yeah. the Pharisees who are asking different questions about Jesus, so when they see Jesus forgive sins, they don't ask. The question: well, How can you forgive yeah. sins without the temple? The Pharisees ask That's the question: right. well, How can you forgive sins unless you're God? <laughs> and That's I think right. our, our our astute listener will spot: Okay, wait a minute. There's some interesting. There's some interesting dynamics going on here in the story about what's being said yeah. and how people are responding. And the temple at the heart of Jewish life in the first century is struggling to maintain its position there, actually, which is which yeah. is really quite interesting for us, both politically and theologically when we look at what's going on here.
1: For sure. For sure. And John represents that outlier. And ironically, I mean, the, the irony is not lost on us mm-hmm. in the Gospel of Luke that John is the son of a priest. Yes. And and yet he is he's he's essentially striking at the heart of the system that his father would have faithfully served Mm -hmm. and and technically John could have served. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So so there is that there is that there is that sense in which did John then consciously deliberately like like the scenes he may have been a part of Did John consciously and deliberately reject that in order to lean into a a greater or wider understanding of the kingdom of God. And, and, and it's really important for us to, to acknowledge that by, by the time Jesus comes along, the temple has become something so far from the original idea of the tabernacle, that it's, it's hard for us to understand why Jesus would be so annoyed, angry, uh, indignant, at, at the mm-hmm. system that's now been built up in the name of God. Mm-hmm. And and it does explain perhaps the outburst that he, he has within the temple system where where he he's railing against something mm-hmm. uh not the presence of God, not the idea that we gather to the presence of God, but what it has become politically, mm-hmm. economically, and religiously. It is it is completely a, a pale shadow of its glory. And therefore John doesn't start in the temple john doesn't go to the temple and start to proclaim john goes to the wilderness to the region around and he starts to proclaim, and the people start to come to him Mm. and uh, he has an audience in the wilderness in the in the desert in in the regions around the jordan which is quite striking
0: and and that point there john i think is is really important to, to not gloss over quickly john doesn't go to the temple to Begin his message again. I think it's Tom Wright in Jesus and the Victory of God, his big book on Jesus. He points out that what we see with John is renewal by replacement. So, so yes. John, John's. Basic position isn't, I think we can fix this temple thing, which some renewal is is exactly how some renewal systems work. Okay, let's get this. Let's get this. We need a coat of paint here and we need to fix that door over there. John's attitude seems to be, no, that whole system needs to come down and we're going to do something else. If you were interested in further homework on that theologically, the book of Hebrews is probably Mm -hmm. a good space to go and do your reading. Because that's sort of what the book of Hebrews is wrestling with, is is how do we move on beyond this temple system into where Jesus sits? And and as I've said before, that was a big question in the first century. The rabbis were wrestling with that question, and the Christians were wrestling with that question as well. And it probably is worth saying that... In, goodness, what are we, approximately 30, 40 years from where we're currently talking about in history? Everybody had to deal with that question because the temple is going to be destroyed by the Romans, right?
1: But of course, you see, and this is, you know, if you fast forward to AD 70, this then becomes an issue for everybody Mm. who has the temple in some form of context and their perspective but of course israel has dealt with this before israel you know israel has been exiled before Mm. and they they didn't just survive exile they they thrived in exile Mm. they and they thrived not having a temple so then what do you lean into you lean into torah Mm. you lean into the word of god you lean into building communities on the truth of that that word and that faith Mm -hmm. and 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 in many ways the sort of the Pharisee type tradition finds its long distant origin in the sort of exilic context mm. oh, yes. where we, we can't go to the temple. We can't sacrifice our animals. We can't do this. We, so where do we go? We go to Torah. Mm. We we go to the written word. And ironically, of course, it's, it's about to come full circle mm. that, that actually Jesus is the word mm. made flesh. The temple system will ultimately be destroyed in the next 30 to 40 years and actually there'll have to be both for a jewish system and a christian system influenced by the jewish system a complete rethink Mm. of the location of something like the temple in our in our religious thought we're already getting a hint of this john in the wilderness Mm -hmm. he's in fact there's not a a single hint that john on the record ever went to the temple Mm. he may have done as a boy probably did as a boy But he certainly doesn't go anywhere near it in his ministry. And even Jesus is quite controlled Mm -hmm. in terms of how often he visits the temple in a ministry context, Mm -hmm. more towards the end of his ministry than than throughout the early years.
0: And, And so what we're saying here really is that at some level, this is within a few verses, we're into the big theological question of the first century for Jews and Christians. Which is, what do you do with the temple? We're, of course, as, as Christian readers, mostly interested in the Christian response to that. But this was the question. And, and again, the, the sharp reader goes from the beginning of John's gospel to the beginning of Acts and notices that the same question is being asked. Like, and the Holy Spirit now is, is being interpreted as pushing us out beyond the confines of Jerusalem and, and, and essentially Ending Christianity as a pilgrimage religion before it even starts. To say that we won't have a central space that we need to be at, we'd rather have a central a central figure. Um, mm. John, just quickly right. before we before we round out this episode, all of this is premised by Luke on the words from Isaiah. Uh, in Isaiah mm, chapter beautiful. forty, I believe. Beautiful. Let's have a let's have a, a brief uh, a brief chat about Isaiah forty. What do you want to say? What do you say about where Luke positions that?
1: Well, I I think one of the one of the beautiful things to see that although the the Isaiah quote in Luke jumps in verse three mm-hmm. in Isaiah forty, mm-hmm. there is a beautiful shift in the Isaiah prophecy. Isaiah forty, some of our listeners may know. There's a sort of a if if you wanted to break Isaiah down, you would mm. look at chapters one to thirty nine as a little bit of a section, mm-hmm. and then forty launches a new section, mm-hmm. and you get this beautiful launch in chapter forty, verse one: "Comfort, comfort my people," says your God. Mm. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that our hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, mm-hmm. and that she has received from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. Now, of course, mm-hmm. it, we know in the context of Isaiah, that's referring to this sort of promised return, restoration mm-hmm. out of the brokenness and devastation of exile. But, but of course, when you hear the Old Testament quoted in the New Testament, mm-hmm. never just take the Old Testament quote in the New Testament, always go back to the original quote. Mm-hmm. And sometimes putting it in its context can give you an extra nuance totally. into what's going on here. So here's John. There's a sense in which John is the one, the divine harbinger, mm. called to prepare the way. The one that the, the the kings of the ancient world literally had harbingers. Mm who would literally make paths. If there wasn't a path, they would go ahead and make a path. (laughs) If the path had holes, they would fill the holes in. If the paths had hills or or lumps in them, they would flatten it. They would even create brand new paths, the harbinger. And, And John is fulfilling that call, but it's in the context of bringing comfort to the people, speaking tenderly to Jerusalem, because her hard service has been completed and of course remembering that Israel at that time is literally exiled in their own country they are slaves in their own nation there's a there's a, a sense in which we can see God's salvation purpose coming here through the Messiah but also the wider context that there's a comfort that there's a, a freedom coming to uh, a wider, uh, context through this this Messiah and John picks this up he becomes this preparer of the way mm. this harbinger this voice I mean he's literally asked in John's gospel who are you <laughs> and there's all sorts of are you a messiah no are you legend?" no are you a prophet no what are you who are you he said I'm a voice I'm a voice mm. I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness and what one gorgeous little last little nuance there David from from Isaiah in Isaiah's original quote it says that all people will see the glory of God. Mm. Luke, um, quoting, I think, the Septuagint there, is making reference to the salvation of God. Luke's, mm. Luke makes a beautiful, deliberate insertion. Uh, I think that, that what you're about to see is not just the glory of God, but God's glory demonstrated through salvation, mm. through the Messiah, through Jesus Christ. And John is the one who is heralding that mm. as an opportunity and a possibility.
0: It's beautiful, isn't it, to think about Luke's interpretive process there. What is mm. God's glory? Well, God's glory is His salvation, and what is His salvation? It is Jesus. Uh, so there's this the, the idea that Je- and, and therefore, Jesus as the glory of God is a thoroughly safe statement. That's beautiful. That's that's a very biblical statement, and you see how Luke is is alluding to that in his in his use of language and interpretation. I think it's totally. interesting as well that the the this little quote from Isaiah echoes Zechariah's song, echoes Mary's magnificat that you see Luke merging together all of these stories in such a beautiful way. But I also wonder if there's a little nuance, John, that, that is just there that I think is interesting and I wouldn't want to build my house on it. But of course we started in verse one with all of this kind of Roman political structure and then we mm. end in verse 6 with this quote from Isaiah. But, of course, the Romans were huge road builders as well. And the, <laughs> is there a little nuance and contrast going on there that you're building your roads, but the Lord is making a path? of And, and salvation was a huge piece of, of, of Roman language. That the, the, the Romans built Absolutely. roads to take Roman salvation to the world. And here you have mm. Luke. Who's writing you this story, which we know is going to end up in Rome, <laughs> with salvation Indeed. coming to Rome. It's uh, and and ironically, as some historians have pointed out, the Christians used the Roman robes to take a different salvation around the Roman Empire.
1: For sure, for sure, and <laughs> and I think the political, geopolitical context of both Isaiah and Luke three should not be lost. Mm that here's here's this gospel both in the context of the old testament people it seems destroyed and crushed and reduced by these great superpowers Mm. and yet the lord is issuing a promise of restoration a promise of bringing something of his glory to bear even in their brokenness Mm. and here we are now in the first century world israel under the heel of rome and as is most of the known world at that time and, and this incredible light starts to shine in the darkness yeah. that that someone start to build a road and the person coming on that road is literally going to change the empires of the world. And and there is that I, I, that's one of the things I love about the biblical text that there's a there's a beautiful, often a beautiful, personal, tender, intimate application to some of this and then there is this macro level that all the time is trying to lift us with hope above Mm. the regimes of planet earth and saying whoever's in power whoever rules the earth whoever thinks they control everything actually there is someone at work above and beyond all of this Mm. who will relentlessly pursue his salvation purposes for humankind and here he is doing it no one could have predicted that what they were about to see would literally outlast the Roman Empire mm. and, in fact, go way beyond any influence that Rome ever could have dreamed of having on the earth. So it's a it's a beautiful, multi-layered, multifaceted insight into that, that beautiful text.
0: So let's leave that there then, John, and we'll come back in our next episode to sort of get into John then and his conversations with the people that turn up to listen to him.